Hello and welcome to Become an Educator, the podcast that aims to explore the secrets to great teaching in our classrooms. I'm Darren Leslie, and each week I discuss things that will hopefully make an impact in your school, with guests from classroom teachers to head teachers and everyone in between and beyond in the education sector. Hello and Happy New Year to you. I'm Darren Leslie and welcome back to Becoming Educated. Joining me today is Bruce Robertson. Bruce is joining me for his third appearance on Becoming Educated. And just like the last two, this is just as brilliant, if not even better. For those that don't know Bruce, Bruce is the rector of Berwickshire High School in the Scottish Borders. And he's the author of the brilliant Teaching Delusion Trilogy which include The Teaching Delusion, Why Teaching in Our Schools Isn't Good Enough and How We Can Make It Better, The Teaching Delusion 2, Teaching Strikes Back, and The Teaching Delusion 3, Power Up Your Pedagogy, which is where we focus our attention on today's episode. We begin by unpacking Bruce's thinking on how Power Up Your Pedagogy came to fruition, because we spoke last time about how the genesis of this book came from Bruce realising that his second book could become Two. Then we, we dive right into Teaching Delusion 3, Power Up Your Pedagogy, and we begin with a crash course in learning, where Bruce explains what is learning and how it happens. Then in the second section of the book, we discuss three areas, elements, power-up prompts, and trusted techniques. And Bruce explores 12 elements of great teaching, and he writes that pedagogy can be thought about as 12 discrete but related elements. Those elements are daily review, learning intentions, success criteria, prior knowledge, presenting content, practice, differentiation, questioning, discussion, (laughs) discussion, feedback, plenary review, and expectations, behaviour, and relationships. In the podcast, we unpack pick a number of them in great detail, where Bruce discusses some of the power-up prompts and the trusted techniques, so there's lots to take away. We also discuss how teachers and school leaders can use power-up pedagogy to support planning for professional professional learning and coaching. I've certainly used some of it in the coaching I've been doing in my school. So I hope you enjoy the first episode of Becoming Educated for 2022. I'm super excited for the year ahead and what Becoming Educated could offer. I hope you find it very useful. But for now, let's dive in and listen to Bruce Robertson on his third appearance in Becoming Educated. Bruce Robertson, thank you so much for coming back on to Becoming Educated for what will be your third appearance. How are you? Great to be back on, Darren. Thanks very much for having me again. Yeah, third time. Super. It certainly is. I've loved our first two conversations, um, so no doubt this one will be just as fascinating and enriching for myself and the listeners. But since the last time... We recorded looking at um, Teaching Strikes Back, the second of your trilogy. Uh, what have you been up to since we last recorded? I'm a head teacher in a secondary school in the Scottish Borders. 
So really most of my time um, has, been, has been consumed in that leadership role. Um, you'll appreciate that we're in uh, challenging times. Um, and I think probably since the last time I was on, um, our school had a reinspection visit, um, which was a, a very positive experience, actually. Um, the good work that our, that our school has been doing over the past 15, 16 months was, was really recognized in that reinspection visit. So everybody's very upbeat about that. Um, but for that reason, the reinspection and for COVID challenges, I think it's fair to say it's been quite a draining term. Mm -hmm. uh, and we're, we're all looking forward to the end of term, which for us is tomorrow. Certainly, certainly. And I'm sure it'll be a well-deserved rest. I think uh, I'm speaking for teachers across the land, you know, it's a thankless task leading a school in, in this uh, through this pandemic and and so on. So thank you for Well, that. I don't know if I don't know if thankless is quite right. I am oh, sorry, I, I think I've worded that wrong, yes. Yeah. Um you, you know, there's a great community spirit comes from it. Um there's nothing like a challenging situation like this to bring people together for people just to to really muck in and go that extra mile. And um, the success of schools today is a result of that. So um, it's actually rewarding, challenging, but but extremely rewarding. No, certainly. Thanks so much for picking that up. I totally, totally agree. Um, so today uh, we're going to unpack your third book, Empower Up Your Pedagogy, the third of the Teaching Delusion Trilogy. And the last time we spoke, you mentioned that the genesis of it came from realising that your second book, could become two is that right yes yes that's right um when i'd finished the teaching delusion i thought i was done i thought i'd said everything that i wanted to say uh, but then relatively quickly i realized that, that maybe i had a little bit more to say so i started to draft something and i planned to write a short sequel um, in the region of 10 to twelve thousand words and i hit that point relatively quickly um, and found I still had a bit more to say and it evolved and grew and uh, before I knew it I had a book which was as long if not longer than The Teaching Delusion and actually when I looked at that um, there were two books it became apparent to me there were two books the central section of, of book two was actually book three it was all about pedagogy um, and so that's how book three came about Power up your pedagogy. Yeah, came through the writing process for book two. Brilliant, thank you. And, and we're going to dig into that a little bit deeper today, especially through the the twelve elements that you talk about. Um, but first, I'd like to talk a little bit about your the first part of that book, which is titled "A Crash Course in Learning." So, can I ask you, Bruce, what is learning, and why is it important that teachers know about what it is and how it happens? So I say in, in, in the early stages of the book that um, until relatively recently in, in my own career in education, I hadn't really considered what learning is and how it happens. Um, and I think it's probably fair to say that I'm with the majority there. I'd never really been encouraged through, through teacher training um, or, or as a result of CPD in the schools I'd worked in today, I'd never really been encouraged to consider what learning is and how it happens. Um, and when you take a step back from that and really consider that, uh, that's crazy because we're all in, in the learning business. Um, the, the, the recent focus 
um, in educational literature on cognitive science has just been incredibly helpful. Uh, there are so many fantastic accessible books out there. And what I tried to do at the beginning of Power Up Your Pedagogy is to capture, to summarize the key messages that are coming from a lot of these texts. And I frame them as 10 learning lessons. So 10 lessons for teachers, if you like, um, to help them to learn more about what learning is. Certainly. Can like to like to start a little bit. I like the first one, and I think that helps kind of shape the rest of them. And your first learning lesson is learning is the development of long-term memory through the accumulation of knowledge. And I like what you put there because it kind of marries up to what we were talking about with curriculum in the last one. So wh why did you choose that one first? Yeah, so this is a statement um, which begins, learning is. So it's setting that out very clearly at the beginning. Learning is the development of long-term memory through the accumulation of knowledge. So it's an extension of the, the definition um, put forward by, by Kirshner um, and various others, uh, that learning is a change in long-term memory. And I really say that you can, you can take your pick which of those two definitions you prefer, learning as a change in long-term memory or the development of long-term memory through the accumulation of knowledge. You can take your pick which of those prefer, which of those you prefer, but, but really what they're doing is they're, they're stressing the importance of long-term memory. And that's absolutely key, I think, for all teachers and school leaders to, to understand that if long-term memory isn't developing, if it isn't changing, uh, then nothing is being learned. How does it develop? How does it change? It's through, it's through the accumulation of knowledge um, in schema. Um, it's, it's through the development of the schema. Um, I argue that, that knowledge is the currency of thinking. Um, so nothing moves into long-term memory. Long-term memory doesn't change unless knowledge has first been um, thought about in working memory. So I argue that, that knowledge is, the, is the, it's the currency of working memory, it's the currency of thinking, and it's the currency of long-term memory, it's the currency of, of learning. So I think it's very, very important for all teachers and school leaders to understand the relationship uh, between working memory, how we get information into working memory, and long-term memory, how we get uh, information in there, and then bring it back out again to support thinking, because we're not trying to develop this long-term memory store um, for the sake of it, we're, we're looking for students to develop their long-term memory so that they can do things with it. And that's where the, the learning lessons, I think, go next. It certainly is, because you then go on to kind of go on to talk about we learn what we think about and what we think about depends on, on what we know, which I think was a little bit further in terms of that accumulation of knowledge. But I want to kind of then land on learning lesson four and Learning lesson four is that you say that we are full of, of misconceptions. Why is that important for teachers to know? So the, the schema that, that students are developing um, are often accurate in that um, what they know and have understood is exactly as the teacher wanted it to be. But often as well, they are inaccurate in that there are misconceptions. Uh, there are things that the, that the student has taken from what has been presented to them that just isn't quite right. And if we don't address that, 
then that will lead to bigger problems moving forward because there's a, there's a fundamental weakness in, in, in the schema. Um, so I give some examples of that um, relating to science, uh, some common misconceptions in science. So plants grow because they take in food from the soil. Um, putting clothes on something will make it warm. The heavier an object is, the more likely it is to sink when put into water. Acids are dangerous. When substances dissolve, they go away. These are all in science. Um, we know that subject knowledge is so important um, for great teaching. It's a prerequisite to great teaching is strong subject knowledge. So, so great teachers are the teachers that have this subject knowledge themselves, but, but understand as well how students will typically think about their subject. What will they typically misunderstand and develop a misconception of? Um, others will talk about this as, as, as pedagogical subject knowledge or pedagogical mm -hmm. content knowledge. So the great teacher really uh, anticipates where these, these misconceptions will form. Um, and through their pedagogy, they're really trying to, to tease out where there are misconceptions, uh, break those down, uh, address them so that they're not there anymore. Um, and then the, the schema will develop as we want them to. So, so that's really what this one is about. And another couple I like to pick is that learning lesson five, you're right, that cognitive load controls thinking and learning. And cognitive load theory is something that is kind of back in the headlines a little bit. But what do you mean how, by how it controls thinking and learning? So usually learning won't take place. There won't be any development of long-term memory unless the specific thing that we want students to learn has been thought about. Um, but thinking in itself um, is quite a complex thing. Um, if we ask students to think about too much at one time, if we ask them to think about things that are too complex for them to handle, uh, then, then we would talk about them becoming cognitively overloaded. So the cognitive load is really, um, it's, it's the amount of pressure, if you like, within working memory. And if that becomes too much, uh, then students become cognitively overloaded. They're unable to think, and therefore they're unable to learn. That, that movement um, of information from working memory into long-term memory doesn't happen. So, um, when we're thinking about cognitive load, um, there's really two types that we need to be considering. We need to be considering intrinsic load associated with, um, with material of any kind. Extraneous load is really to do with the, the way that content is presented to students. Um, what we're trying to do is we're trying to optimize intrinsic load so that we've got the right balance between the thinking, not, 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 things aren't too easy um, and they're not too difficult. We're, we're, we're trying to strike a balance in the middle. And with extraneous load, we're, we're trying to minimize that as much as we can. That's, that's unnecessary load. And it's all about how we present content to students, not giving them too much information at one time um, in our spoken delivery or about asking them to, to be paying attention to too much at one time through visuals. It's about uh, controlling the presentation 
um, of content to students. And I think it's very important that teachers and school leaders understand what cognitive load is, the distinction between intrinsic load and extraneous load. And, and that's really why I'm arguing in this principle that, that, um, that cognitive load um, controls thinking and learning. Certainly, thank you. A great explanation of both intrinsic and extraneous load. And I'd agree that I think it's important to, it helps us inform our teaching. I think we'll come into that when we look through the 12 elements a little bit as well. Um, a couple more I want to talk about in learning lessons before we jump into the elements, if I may. The one that follows that is, is learning lesson six. You see that familiarity and learning are not the same thing. Could you expand on that, what you mean by there? So often somebody can be explaining something to you and you think that makes sense. And then you're asked to then explain that back, um, maybe in your own words. And you think, oh yeah, that, that'll be easy because that makes sense. And then you find it's not, you find you're tripping yourself up. You, you thought you had it, but you didn't quite have it. Um, Maybe you're not sure of a particular word. Maybe you're not quite sure of the order of things. There's something missing. Um, there's, there's maybe a misconception has developed. But just you understood it. The, the, the presentation, it made sense to you. Um, but that's you being familiar with it. Um, that there's a difference there uh, between familiarity and learning. That, that's really what I'm trying to get at here. What we need to be doing in our teaching is, is checking all the time. Did you understand that? Um, you, you look like you paid attention to that. Uh, I'm sure you thought you paid attention to that, but did you really pay attention to that? I'm going to check. And, and that's what this one is really getting at. Yeah, I think teachers up and down the land can recognize scenarios just like that. The next couple of learning lessons talk about how over time learning fades in space retrieval. But I want to come to the last learning lesson because you write that in that one that novices and experts think and learn differently. Can you speak to the, the differences between a novice and expert and how that should inform our teaching practice? It's really all to do with the, the schema that we have been developing in long-term memory. And whenever we're talking about a particular um, knowledge domain, uh, so knowledge of a, of a particular thing, uh, novices are people who have um, quite limited schema, quite limited knowledge constructs in relation to that particular domain. And experts are people who have much more detailed better organized schema. Now it's these schema that we're using um, to make sense of new information. We're using the schema that we have in long-term memory to support our thinking. Novices then are at a disadvantage to experts because the schema that they have are less detailed, less well-organized. Hence, they think about new information differently to how experts do. Experts have a tremendous advantage. They have schema which are um, just better constructed. There's more to them. Uh, it's better organized. So you see uh, you're, you're presented with new information. You can make sense of it in a completely different way. You can get past uh, superfluous detail 
um, and, and surface structure that might not be particularly relevant uh, in a problem, say, and really home in on what the specific aspects of the problem are. You, you, can, you can really get to the nitty gritty of it fast. But if you're a novice, that's far more difficult. Um, you're much more lost. Um, you're not able to guide your own learning in the same way because you're just, you're just not armed in the same way. And this has um, a major um, influence. This should have an, a major influence on, on, on our teaching because when we're teaching anyone who's novice in a particular um, knowledge domain, then the way that we teach them should be influenced by that. And I've said consistently through the Teaching Delusion, Delusion Trilogy that really um, practices which are more teacher-led, direct interactive instruction, formative assessment, these are typically the best pedagogies for students who are novices. Um, but as expertise develops, then allowing students to lead their learning more, well, then that becomes more appropriate. And that's really what, what this particular learning lesson is getting at. And that speaks to, <clears throat> excuse me, speaks to the idea in the first book, Teaching Delusion, of um, specific and non-specific teaching. Right. Those strategies that match up with novice and expert. Experts. That's right. That's right. Experts as our students, we begin with our students as novices, so we must teach them more directly. And as they become experts, we can then use different strategies so we're going to kind of dig into that a little bit as we explore the 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 next part of the book because um, in the second section of powered up pedagogy you discuss three areas elements uh, power up prompts and trusted techniques and i think it really makes it accessible for readers to use as, as a as a coaching tool for themselves or I, i've i've been using it with um some of my colleagues as well, sharing snippets as well. So it's a really good coaching tool for me in my role as I help teachers get better at their classroom practice. Was that your aim? Yes, absolutely. Um, the book begins um, with a problem. Um, the problem really is that in too many schools, teachers are receiving poor quality feedback or no feedback. Um, on, on their teaching. And that is a big problem mm -hmm. um, because almost all teachers have, have the right mindset. They've got this mindset of continuous improvement. They just want to keep getting better and better and better at what they do. Um, but they need support. Teachers need support to do that. It, most teachers can lead their own professional learning um, through reading and discussion and, and observing other colleagues. But if that's all that's happening, there's, there's an important component missing. And that component is another professional who has a strong understanding of pedagogy, uh, observing that teacher and getting into a discussion with that teacher about specific aspects of their teaching. That, that's really, really important in the professional learning jigsaw. Uh, in the absence of somebody who is able to do that, then the teacher, I think, needs some sort of coaching tool, a self-coaching tool. And, and that's really one of the reasons that this book has been written, so that teachers can use it as a self-coaching resource. Um, 
it discusses pedagogy in detail as 12 elements. And depending on which aspect of your practice you're most interested in, you could just jump in at any particular element. You don't have to read the book sequentially. And as it, as it, as it discusses each of these elements, it will pause uh, with a statement, a short statement designed to capture the, the, the key message, the, the key thing for a teacher to think about. It's a reflective cue, if you like. Uh, I call them power-up prompts. So it's designed to make you just pause and think and reflect. Um, do I do that? To, to, to what extent do I do that? Do I do that well? How could I do that better? It, it's about that. So you can use it as a self-coaching tool. And then it, it offers some suggested trusted techniques, so specific practices that, that, that you could then practice in a deliberate way in your own teaching to, to help you develop um, that particular aspect of your practice. So it's designed as a self-coaching um, tool, but it's also designed to, to, to upskill others, people who, teachers and school leaders, who would be going in to observe lessons themselves so that they, they sharpen their understanding of, of what high quality pedagogy actually is. So no longer um, do the, dis the, the discussions after the lesson, um, no longer are they unfocused, um, no longer is the advice given um, well, poor, um, for, for, yeah, we'll just not be around the, about the bush there. Um, actually, we're, we're going to get into high quality discussions here because this is designed to upskill those who are observing lessons as much as it is um, teachers who are actually teaching lessons. Certainly, and it's a wonderful, um, can I, as I, I definitely certainly think so, it's a wonderful kind of progression from the first book where you argued that a shared understanding of great teaching is, is essential um, for a school. This really digs deep into um, that shared understanding and it's, it's a great tool to use to help shape discussions and mean that you're both talking about the same things because oftentimes yes. um, you might talk about, we'll come on to differenti differentiation mm. a little bit later on, that's one great example where a teacher's uh, feedback might be you need to differentiate more right but you have no clue what that actually means exactly. so goes back to dylan williams famous famously talks about a student who needs to do something with with an essay and he asked the student about it and the student said well if i knew how to do that i would have done it in the first place right you know, and it's, it's the example. same for for teachers and teaching so what i'd like to do now bruce is go through the 12 elements in turn uh, and can I tap into a little bit of your thinking and see if we can share some some gold for our, for our listeners and see if they can kind of help themselves to, to improve in their classrooms on them. Uh, and it begins with a daily review. And, and the first power-up prompt there is that lessons begin with a review activity requiring recall from long-term memory, building on that learning lessons. So how, how could teachers best go about beginning their lessons with this review activity? So I start this section by, by suggesting that most teachers do start their lesson with, with some kind of starter. Um, but, but sometimes um, that starter can be a bit of a... about students started um, as is implicit from that word 
just just getting them going. And in that sense, then I would argue it's it's a being busy task. It, it's designed to keep students occupied, uh, to settle the class, and um, maybe the, so to buy the teacher a bit of time so that they can do what whatever they need to do at the start of the lesson, take the register, that sort of thing. Um, I'm arguing though that that the best kind of starter activity is one um, which does, as is suggested in the power-up prompt, uh, one that is a review activity requiring recall from long-term memory. Why is that the best kind of starter? Um, because educational research is, is pretty clear that the act of retrieving information from long-term memory helps to strengthen the memory of it. That's, that's the testing effect. So what we're doing in this starter activity is we are helping learning uh, by getting students to, to recall um, content, which they've um, hopefully previously learned. Um, we're, we're supporting that learning process. What we're also then able to do as teachers is get formative information for ourselves uh, about the extent to which what we taught has been learned. Maybe we're teasing out misconceptions um, through that review process. We're activating schema potentially, because if what we're getting students to, to, to think about, to recall from long-term memory, if it relates in part at least to what is going to be taught in the lesson, then, then we're activating particular schema, making it more likely that what is taught in this lesson will link to that. So again, we're helping learning here. So for all of these reasons, I'm really arguing that maybe the, the terminology starter isn't probably the most helpful. Mm. Let's use some terminology, which actually gets to the nitty gritty of what this is about, which is a review, a daily review, because we're starting um, each lesson each day with this kind of activity. So daily review rather than starter. And yes, the power up prompt, as we said, Darren, lessons begin with a review activity requiring recall from long-term memory. It's a pause for reflection. And to what extent is that true in my practice? Certainly. Can you, <clears throat> most, uh, I think most listeners will be kind of, um, what's my word? They'll have knowledge on retrieval practice, especially if you've listened to some of my episodes with, with Kate Jones. Um, I like some of the, the techniques in there of, of last lesson empty your brain, but um, you're a big advocate of show me boards. How could a teacher best use show me boards for, the, for a, a daily review activity? Yeah, I'm a big advocate of show me boards. I absolutely love show me boards. Um, the reason is because they, they, they demand really that, that all students are thinking about what you want them to think about, because we know that, that if we ask the class a question, um, chances are only some of the class, maybe even a minority of the class are actually thinking of an answer. If we expect that every student writes an answer on the show me board, then every student is having to think about the question that we asked. Um, if every student is holding that up to us, then we're making the thinking of every student visible. So we're getting that formative information as a teacher about the learning of everyone in the class. And then we can use the responses in any way that we see fit. We, we can pick a random board and we can make comment on that. We can say something like, okay, I can see that everybody's got that right. Or I, I can see that actually about half of the class haven't quite got that. Let's do something with this. 
It can hold the board up to the class and say, okay, this is what this student's written. What do we think about that? Is he or she right? Um, is there something that's, 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 that's wrong or, or not quite right about this? And they're, they're tremendously powerful, both as a formative teaching resource and as a collaborative learning resource. Um, so that's why I'm such a big fan of show me boards. And I think that they can be used um, in every lesson in, in almost all parts of the lesson. Definitely, I think making visible that student thinking that you spoke about and giving that formative information to, to yourself and as the teacher and the students is, is incredibly powerful. And, and one final area of daily review I want to consider is, yeah, the power up prompt four is a proportionate amount of time is used for review activities. Um, I think that's important because often, like you mentioned with the, the use of the word starter, it's might off, sometimes it's too long, sometimes it's too short. So could you give us a little bit of guidance? What is a, what is a proportionate amount of time or does it, does it, is it entirely dependent on the lesson or the recall you're trying to get from the students? Yeah, I think it's that second part, Darren. I think it's really dependent on, on the particular lesson, where you are in the curriculum, maybe your subject and how much time is given to that subject in the timetable. Um, I will always argue that teaching isn't about covering content. It isn't about getting through the curriculum. And there is a difference between teaching something and students learning something. And we're, we're trying to make sure we don't have that teaching learning gap. So I would always argue that, um, well, an argument can always be made. I don't have time for daily review, but we must make time for daily review because it's a fundamental aspect of the learning process mm -hmm. that students are expected um, to recall information from long-term memory. So we must make time for daily review. What I've avoided the temptation to do is to say in this power-up prompt, um, five minutes is spent on daily review or 10 minutes or, 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 or between five and 10 minutes or something like that. Because the teacher is best placed to know in this particular lesson what a proportionate amount of time is. Um, for whatever reason, using this prompt, let's see, because the prompts can be used in the planning of the lesson or they can be used when reflecting on the lesson afterwards. So if I was the teacher um, and I'm using this power-up prompt to guide my planning, I might think that with this particular learning intention and these activities that I've planned for this lesson, a proportionate amount of time for this review is three minutes. And then actually in reality, when I'm reflecting on the lesson afterwards and I'm going back to the power-up prompt, a proportionate amount of time is used for review activities, I recognize that actually I should have spent longer on that review. Why? Because the learning that this was assessing was fundamental to everything else that was going on. And students hadn't got it. If I'd spent longer on the review, I might have been able to tease out more. I might have been able to address more. If I'd found that out, I would actually have saved myself more time in the long run because actually the lesson has almost been a waste of time because I wasn't able to, to build on what I wanted to build on because it wasn't there in the first place. So that's what this power-up prompt is really getting at. No, certainly it kind of speaks to the complex nature, nature of teaching, but how important it, how important that recall is because the learning lesson of over time that that learning fades, but using space retrieval, we can really 
help strengthen that, that increase that storage strength according to the the new theory of disuse of, of right. Robert and Elizabeth Bjork. So I think that really ties that together. And, and you mentioned their learning intentions. So element two is learning intentions and. I think teachers can tie themselves in knots with learning intentions and success criteria. But what you do in the book is you really, I've never seen it or read it and be put across so simply. So I want to tap into that a little bit here. So thank you. And the first power up prompt is the learning intention relates to specific learning, not doing. Can you expand on that, please? So I agree with you, just to, to kick off um, with what you said, Darren, I agree that, that teachers and school leaders can tie themselves in knots with learning intentions. Um, and, and where we have learning intentions that are used poorly, um, often we'd be, better not we'd be better not having the learning intention at all. But learning intentions used well, they're well worded, um, they're shared in an effective way. Uh, these absolutely uh, will support the learning in the lesson. Um, so I, I really begin the, the, the section by saying that not all teachers and school leaders agree that the use of learning intentions is important, but actually I argue that this, this is more to do with their experience of poor use, poor approaches, um, and that where they are used well, well, well the power of them really does uh, become visible. And the power up prompts, um, the learning intention relates to specific learning, not doing. So this is the idea discussed in the teaching delusion and the teaching delusion too, um, that, that there are such things as being busy activities. A bit like the starter we were talking about earlier, activities that are good at keeping students busy and occupied, but aren't particularly good for getting students to think hard about the specific content that we want them to be learning. So if, if a learning intention is task orientated, well, 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 that's the sort of uh, being busy type activity that, that, that we're talking about here. So complete the experiment that we started the previous lesson. Or answer all the questions on page 60. And take part in a group activity to investigate factors that affect dissolving. These are not learning intentions. These don't fit the definition of what a learning intention actually is. They're, they're not about the specific learning. What is it specifically that we want students to know, to understand, to be able to do by the end of the lesson? Far better would be something like, we are learning about the structure of an atom, specifically to know about the subatomic particles that make up atoms. It's better. We are learning to separate mixtures, specifically to be able to separate an insoluble substance from water. It's better. It's about the learning. And that's what that power, pump, power up prompt is getting at. Right, thank you. And wonderful, wonderful examples. I think will will help the listeners and, and they've certainly helped me reading the book really confirm my, my ideas there. Um, the, the last power up prompt in this section is, is really interesting and it is that the learning intention is specific to the lesson being taught. Um, could you speak to more of that? Because I think um, quite often learning intentions can be written to span a number of lessons, but maybe not a specific lesson. Is that what you're trying to say here? Yes, um, I am. I, I don't think there's any problem at all with the same learning intention 
spanning more than one lesson. I don't think there's any problem with that because it's the learning that we're most interested in and learning doesn't always fit into nice lesson units. Of course it can't because different schools allocate different amounts of time to different lessons. So that's really never going to work. And yet there should be a specific learning focus for a lesson. This is, this is, this is the learning purpose. And that's what this power up prompt is getting at. The learning intention is specific to the lesson being taught. The fact that that learning intention is then used again in the next lesson, well, well, that's fine because it's still about the specific learning in that lesson, that the lesson is a, is a continuation of it. So it's, it's really trying to get across the idea that every lesson counts. The purpose of every lesson in terms of the learning that we're aiming to, to be achieved, that should be captured in the learning intention. But it's not saying lesson two must have a different learning intention from lesson one. It's not saying that. Um, sometimes it will, sometimes it won't. But the learning intention should be specific to the lesson being taught. Certainly, I love how you started that about saying it's the learning that we are most interested in. So wonderful clarification there. Um, often when we speak about learning intentions in teaching, it's quickly followed by success criteria, which is element three. And you're right there that in the first part from there that success criteria should clearly communicate what you're looking for. And you offer three te trusted techniques here. Uh, I can statements key features and exemplars. Can you speak to the differences between those three? And could you also um, share if, if you could, if any one of those could go with any part of learning or does it depend on what the students are learning? So when I was in the earlier stages of my, my teaching career and like what you suggested, the terms learning intentions and success criteria they always came as a package. Um, and I was really taught, led to believe that at the start of a lesson, it was important to share the learning intention with the success criteria. And I no longer believe that that is as essential as was suggested to me at that time. Sometimes it is appropriate to share the success criteria with the learning attention at the start of a lesson and then to revisit both together at the end of the lesson. Some lessons do lend themselves to that approach and that's typically when the success criteria can take the form I can statements. So if the learning intention um, goes along the lines we are learning about the structure of an atom specifically to know about the subatomic particles that make up atoms I can statements, which could function as the success criteria, might go along the lines. I can draw a labeled diagram of an atom showing the arrangement of the three subatomic particles that make it up. I can state the charge of each of the subatomic particles. I can state the mass of each of the subatomic particles. So you're giving the students at the start of the lesson uh, an idea about what the focus is going to be. And then as the lesson goes on, I could imagine that you would be referring back to those. Remember, one of the success criteria today was I can state the charge of each of the subatomic particles. That's what we've just been looking at. At the end of the lesson, that's revisited. 
maybe there's an exit ticket activity specifically designed to assess learning against those criteria. Um, many lessons will lend themselves to that form of success criteria, but not all. And I think that's a key point. Um, key features, as you said, Darren, that's a, that's a different type of success criteria. So that's, that's where maybe you've got this diagram of, of an atom and you're saying to students, well, I want to, I want to see the following clearly labeled the nucleus, protons, neutrons, electrons. These are the key features. And now they can use that as their own checklist. So it's a bit more specific. But then there's an awful lot of learning that's very difficult to articulate in words um, and in writing. And teachers, to use your expression again, can tie themselves in knots trying to articulate what it is exactly that they're looking for in words or in writing, because some learning just doesn't lend itself naturally to that. It would be far better and more efficient if the teacher was to use examples. Mm -hmm. This is a good example because. This is not a good example because. Here's another example. What do you think about this example? Is this a good one or is this not a good one? Why? So the success criteria, the what you're looking for, is being teased out. Now, in reality, you could imagine then that that could be complemented through use of key features. It's not a case of your, the I can statements, uh, the key features, the exemplars. You're using one or the other. It's more that you have this understanding that success criteria could take a variety of forms um, and that often these forms can complement each other. But the key point is, what evidence am I looking for as the teacher to get assurances that what is trying to be learned is being learned? It's all about the evidence that you're trying to generate. Students can use the success criteria themselves in self-assessment. They can use it in peer assessment. And again, it's all about the evidence. Success criteria are about evidence. They are about prove it. Certainly, because the last, the third and fourth power prompts there, I think you, what you alluded to there are success criteria are specific enough so that learning can be evaluated. And the last one, all students prove their learning against each of the success criteria. Right. And again, you're using that power prompt, let's say, power up prompt in your planning. So you're looking at that statement and, you, and, and it says all students prove their learning against each of the success criteria. So now you're thinking in your planning, okay, well, what activity am I going to design so that that happens? All students prove their learning against each of the success criteria. You're evaluating the success of the lesson afterwards. You're returning to that power-up prompt. It's, it's, it's a reflective cue. To what extent was that the case? Could that have been better? How? So these power-up prompts are trying to capture in a succinct way um, a key message from the text that's gone before it in the book. Certainly, certainly is. So we're going to move on to, to the next one, um, like prior, prior knowledge. And this one only has one power-up prompt. Um, and it is that assessment is used to explore students' prior knowledge, activating relevant schemata and guiding future teaching. And we spoke about that in the learning lessons. Um, and there's a couple of good trusted techniques there. And, and the ones, show me boards come up again, which I really, really like. But other ones like multiple choice, 
deliberate mistakes, uh, odd one out, true or false concept cartoons. I'd like to kind of pick your brain a little bit and how do you think, could you, sorry, could you expand on uh, deliberate mistakes and, and multiple choice? Because that's two areas that teachers often use, but they could do, use them even better, I feel. So if we go back to what we were saying earlier um, about cognitive load and uh, the difference between intrinsic and extraneous cognitive load. And the intrinsic load is the natural load that's associated with material, um, how difficult it is, um, how complex it is. Um, you could imagine that you, you plan for a deliberate mistakes activity in a lesson, but because the prior knowledge is, is there in, in, in most of your students, uh, they, they, have a, they have a really solid grasp of, of the content here. Um, you, you would need to plan for a deliberate mistake that was pretty challenging in relation to that because you know where they are in their learning. Uh, whereas if you had some doubts about where the, 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 the security was in their learning, then maybe you're planning for a deliberate mistake that's, that's not quite so challenging. So, just because you put a deliberate mistake in doesn't mean that that's actually going to, to create a useful learning activity because it's all about the extent to which we're getting to students to think hard enough um, about what we want them to think about. And again, going back to the cognitive load idea, I use the analogy of weightlifting. Mm -hmm. That um, it, you, you, you can lift weights, but that isn't necessarily going to develop muscle in the way that you want it to. You'll understand this better than me with your PE background, Darren. But if the weights are too light, you're wasting your time. And if they're too heavy, you're wasting your time as well. Uh, you're looking to hit that sweet spot. Uh, it's the Goldilocks principle. So it's the same with all of these um, assessment activities that I talk about in this section. You need to think about where your students are in their learning. You need to think about the level of demand. Uh, you might choose to differentiate that in that you, you sequence the deliberate mistakes in a particular way. Um, but yes, I think it's that. Not, not all mistakes are equal. Right, thank you. Um, moving on then to element five in presenting content. And I can remember when I first read um, the Teaching Delusion book and you spoke about direct interactive instruction and it just it really blew my mind a little bit because I think it summarized a lot of the things that I was thinking about and you put a name to it and uh, it's really kind of helped me give I can't know how to word it give um, attention to how I teach in the classroom and, and help other teachers teach in the classroom and and the first power up prompt here is presentations are interactive holding students' attention and making everyone think. Can you speak to that idea of, of that interactive instruction? And can you share a couple of trusted techniques that we can use to hold students' attention and make them everyone think? You and I both work in Scotland, and it's been really pleasing to me that um, on more than one occasion over the past year, I've heard people who work in the inspection team in Scotland talk about direct interactive instruction and the importance of that. It's been so good to hear that. Mm -hmm. The direct part I see really as um, 
the explanation and the modeling and how clear that is. And then the interactive part is all about the holding student attention um, and making students think and checking for understanding. It, it, it's about that really. And uh, the, the term direct instruction is, is pretty well embedded, I think, in teaching. Mm -hmm. I really suggest, though, in the teaching delusion that there, there, there is merit, I think, in reframing that as direct interactive hyphenated instruction, direct interactive instruction, just to get across the importance of it's not just about the quality of your exposition, the quality of your PowerPoint slides and the examples that you use. That is all very, very important, but not enough in itself. It's that interactivity. Um, and I think that part is actually more difficult. I, I, yeah, I do. I think it's incredibly challenging and it demands great skill to be able to interact with the whole class in real time um, as a teacher and, and to keep that going. Show me boards we talked about earlier, they're a very useful way to do that. They're an example of a trusted technique that I, I refer to throughout the book. Others that I refer to in this particular section, uh, Cold Call, which is a Doug Lemoff technique uh, from his Teach, Teach Like a Champion book, and uh, which is asking lots of questions to different students, but in such a way that no one knows who will be asked. Um, chunk it. So in chunking presentations, and the, the, expo the exposition is broken up with short tasks requiring students to do something with the information that's been presented. So there's been a short piece of exposition and the teacher could continue, but they don't, they pause. Now I want you to do this. And that, that is the teacher interacting with the students, um, allowing them to check the extent to which they've actually understood what the teacher was presenting. A varied voice. I should be trying to model that in this interview. <laughs> Varying the pace and the volume of our voice to hold attention um, and, in, and, and to make eye contact with students um, and, and interact with them in, in that real human way. Um, using silence for effect and, and emphasis. I call that um, pause for effect. Um, I think that is a form of, of interaction. It's, it's how you are interacting with the class. Pause for effect. So the way that these techniques are designed, you as the teacher are, are reflecting on this power-up prompt, which is presentations are infused with interaction, holding students' attention, making everyone think. And you've concluded as a teacher that actually that's an area you'd like to develop in your practice. So you think, well, how can I do that? Well, the book is structured in a such a way that you can think, right, well, here's, here's a trusted technique or here's a selection of trusted techniques that I could dip into. And I'm really going to practice that in a deliberate way. So the one that I'm going to pick is varied voice because I think actually I'm, I'm not doing enough with that. So um, I'm going to think about how I'm going to use varied voice. The, the person who, who I'm asking in to observe my lesson, that's what I'm going to ask them um, to help me with, to give me feedback on. That's maybe what I'll practice with them behind the scenes, out of class, different things work for different people. Um, I say later on in the book that, that role play can be useful in, in planning and preparation. Personally, I despise role play uh, and I would run out the room if you, if you told me I had to engage in that. But for some people, they love that. So 
it's, it's not a case of one size fits all, but the trusted technique is designed to give you something specific that you can practice in a deliberate way as a teacher to make your teaching even better. Certainly. And you go on to then, you mentioned a little bit there about resources and presentations and your next part prompts resources and presentations are carefully designed to support students to focus on the specific content that we want them to be thinking about. And in this chapter, you reference another Scottish talk by a, a, a fellow called Robert McMillan called Clean Up Your Mess. Um, how, is, how important is it that we strip back our slides, which is one of the trusted techniques here? Yes, so there's a lot of important information packed into this section of the book. Um, which, as you say, Darren, is all about how we're actually presenting to students. And it talks about things such as um, modality and the modality effect. Um, it talks about transient information, the idea that when something is said, um, that you have to hold that in working memory um, in order to remember that in the short term. And that there's a, there's a cognitive load associated with that. Um, and that sometimes it can be helpful to actually have, have specific points, key points um, in writing as well, and um, that the student can then refer back to. They don't have to hold it in, one, in working memory. Um, it's not causing extraneous load. But there's a balance to be struck between having the specific key points written down for the students to refer back to and having too much text for them to be looking at at one time. And I think it's one of the most um, common things that I see in lessons uh, and, and certainly have been guilty of myself in the past, which is to put a slide of information up that you spent a lot of time preparing and then you just start talking about it instantly. And it is impossible for students to pay attention to both. They cannot read what is on the slide and listen to what you are saying at the same time. Now, on the one hand, you as the teacher might just be reading out the information that appears. Um, and and that, that's not great teaching because this relates to the redundancy principle, which is because students can only focus on one at a time, one of the two forms is redundant. The student has to make some effort really to filter that out and that causes unnecessary cognitive load. But worse than that is if that text appears and the teacher then starts different to what is on the screen. So now the students are trying to read what's on the screen and, and the teacher isn't even saying what's on the screen. They're not reading that out. They're actually saying something that's different, sometimes just subtly different and sometimes massively different, but it causes huge cognitive load. So if, we're presenting students with text on a slide and I'm, and I'm saying in the book that is often important. I'm certainly not saying never put text on a slide. I'm not saying that. But if we are, let there be some breathing space for the student to look at that themselves, to read it themselves, give the instruction for that to happen. Let there be silence as students do that. And now that they've had that opportunity to read it, and perhaps you've signaled within the text particular words and phrases that are key. Now you can start to speak about it. 
and you can ask students to direct their attention on you. The best thing that we can do, it's not always possible, but the best thing that we can do is, is present some form of visual to students and to start to talk through the visual. And this is where um, the message risks getting overly complicated, but I'm really at pains in the book to try to keep it as simple as possible. Mm -hmm. um, presenting information in, in, the, in the pictorial form and talking that through means that the information is being presented to students in different modalities and they are able to process that in working memory at the same time. These are all just things for teachers um, to consider in their own teaching. Um, and that's really, I think, what this section of the book is, is getting at there. Certainly. I want, to, I want to stay on presenting context. I think it's one of the most important things that we do in teaching and having taught uh, Engelman's um, corrective mathematics for quite some time now, I'm finding the instructional phase so, so fascinating. So I'd like to come to, to two more of me. Um, how can teachers take steps, make sure that steps are taken to make content interesting? Yeah, so students are much more likely to pay attention and to think about things if they perceive this and to be interesting. What you find interesting and what I find interesting may be different, and yet there are um, particular generic approaches which typically will tend to generate interest. And I'll talk about what those might be in a moment. Also, and I say this uh, quite clearly in the second book, some content in itself is naturally interesting um, to, to most students in a class, whereas other content isn't quite as interesting in itself. And it's the job of the teacher to make all content interesting so that students think about it and pay attention to it. Mm -hmm. So how can we do that? Uh, well, we could present a problem. And we, we could, we, a bit like I said earlier in, in this discussion, and um, the book starts with a problem. What's the problem? The problem is that too few teachers are receiving uh, enough high quality feedback to really help them to improve their practice. So there's a problem and people recognize that this is a problem and instantly your mind starts to think, well, how can we solve this problem? I want to know how we can solve this problem. So um, that's a way to, to really grab attention um, and to make um, the content interesting. Tell a story. Um, teachers who have um, the, the best subject knowledge are, are in the best position uh, to go off on short tangents um, and tell stories relating um, to that content. We have to be careful because if we allow that to go on for too long, it can be a distraction. And that ends up being the story is the thing that the students think about and all they end up remembering. So we have to be proportionate with it. But I say, I think within this section of the book that planning for a lesson doesn't just have to be about pedagogy. Lesson planning can be about the development of subject knowledge. So I give an example here of, of of me imagining that I was teaching a lesson on the solar system and the learning that I want is for students to, to, to learn the order of the, the planets in the solar system, the eight planets in the solar system. 
And I say to them um, that I could present this as a labeled diagram and ask students to take a minute to memorize the order and then ask them to reproduce this from memory. And I say that that would probably be effective at achieving the learning goal, but it is somewhat dry. So it'd be far better if I told some sort of story relating to that. I won't repeat the whole story that I give the example of in the book, but just the first part of it. Um, Venus is the second planet from the sun and the third brightest object in the Earth's sky after the sun and the moon. It is sometimes referred to as the sister planet to Earth because their size and mass are so similar. Venus is also the closest planet to the Earth. The surface of Venus is hidden by an opaque layer of clouds that are formed from sulfuric acid. I am now reading the whole thing. The planet is named after Venus, the Roman goddess of love and beauty, and, the, and is the second largest terrestrial planet. So there's a story in there. Mm -hmm. And where did that information come from? Well, it, it came from me doing a little bit of homework. I knew that this is what I wanted to teach, to present to students. And I knew that the way that I'd initially planned to do it with a label diagram, memorize it, reproduce it, it's a bit dry. And I knew as well that I didn't know enough about this particular content. So I took time in my planning to do a bit of research so that I could present it in a more interesting way. And, and that's really what I'm trying to get at here. Um, and, and there are ways, well, having a good knowledge of the history of your subject, the key people in your subject, how your subject relates to other subjects. These are all ways I think that you can start to make content interesting. They certainly are. I think they're often referred to in, in literature as the, the hinterland that kind of enhances the core. And, and I think what you, a lot of things you've said there are really, really, really bring learning to life for the students and really hold their attention. So I'm going to conscious of time, Bruce, I'm going to, I'm going to move forward through a couple other ones quite quickly. Um, and I'm going to miss out uh, element six, I, although I do recognize that practice is incredibly important because I want your thoughts on element seven on, on differentiation, because we spoke last time um, about differentiation. But here, at, your first power up prompt is the 80% rule is used to guide decisions about what to do next. So could you expand on, on what you mean by the 80% rule and that, how that helps us with differentiation in the classroom? So the first few pages of this section on differentiation really discuss this 80% this rule uh, in some detail. Um, and then the power-up prompt, as we said, it's designed to capture that uh, in a succinct message. The 80% rule is really um, about you as a teacher making the decision about when to move on. So you have presented something and you've asked um, students to do something with what you've presented and, and, and you're looking at the responses from, from all of the students and you've gauged that 50% of the class have got this at this time. Should you move on? I'm arguing no, that's not enough. Um, the 80% rule is suggesting that as a rule of thumb, when we're making decisions about when to move on, it's, it's idealistic and unrealistic to expect that 100% of students will have it. And probably you'd, be, you'd, you'd end up wasting time. While there is benefit to students in overlearning, which is, is practicing things that they are already good at, there absolutely is benefit there. 
there is a curriculum to deliver and it's probably not going to be practical that you have 100% success with everything that you're asking students to do um, before you move on. It's arguing that 80% should be the rule of thumb. You are not then abandoning those 20%. You're mindful that there are 20% who actually need some more support. So how do they get that support? Well, the trusted techniques that, it, that it's suggesting um, are temporary grouping, whereby you've now got to a stage in the lesson where students are going to be practicing something uh, themselves. And you as the teacher are going to get a particular group of students, maybe four or five, who you know didn't really get it from your modeling and exposition. You're going to get them together in a temporary way. Um, it's a bit of small group tutoring, if you like. Get them up to speed and now reintegrate them into the class, temporary grouping, or offer them out of class support. And depends on your school context as to whether you're able to do that, uh, a break or a lunchtime, maybe after school, but, but, but offer that support. Um, homework, um, opportunities uh, to address that 80-20 imbalance through extra work or homework out of class. That, that's, that's really what this one is getting at. Certainly. And another element in that that I like to explore is, is element uh, is power up prompt three, sorry, not element power up prompt, is that activities create desirable difficulties getting all students to think hard. So how, how can we, sorry, I'll, I'll start that again. Um, could you expand a little bit on what you mean by desirable difficulties? And can you give us some ideas on how we can get all students to think hard by creating desirable difficulties? So this goes back to something that we um, that we talked about earlier, um, Darren. I think we were talking about it. Um, perhaps it was in daily review, and it certainly links to cognitive load. And it's about it was about deliberate mistakes. We were talking about this, and we said that just because you put a deliberate mistake into something doesn't mean it's actually going to get students to think hard enough um, about specific content. So. Here, um, I'm giving the example of um, a lesson being taught to a class of 13-year-olds. And in the plenary activity, um, in an effort to gauge understanding through some sort of assessment activity, the, the teacher has um, three true or false statements. And um, so lessons about the greenhouse effect. And the true or false statements say, um, we are learning about the blue house effect. Burning fossil fuels is a bad thing. Burning forests is causing climate change. Do these questions get students to think? Well, yes, because all questions get students to think, but are they thinking hard? Are they at the right level of challenge? I would argue no. I would, I would argue that most people would say that a question like a true false statement, like we're learning about the blue house effect to a class of 13 year olds who are learning about the greenhouse effect, everybody's going to say that's false. So that's not a desirable difficulty. Mm -hmm. It's not getting them to think hard enough about the specific content. So just because we can ask a question, uh, we, we, we need to think about the wording of the question and, and just how hard it's drilling into the concept. Is it just touching on the surface? This one is just touching on the surface. Or is it drilling deeper than that? Is it, is it coming at the content from, from, from different angles to get students to think about things in different ways? Um, is it targeting common misconceptions that students have? Um, if it is, 
probably a desirable difficulty. Um, you know, you can take it to its extreme, you're asking a question and there's no chance of students answering it. That's not a desirable difficulty because it's far too difficult. The students just give up. That, that doesn't promote the, the kind of thinking that we need to develop long-term memory. So um, in, in this section, it, it talks about how we can introduce the right level of challenge by designing questions carefully. Mm -hmm. And it gives some specific examples of how to do that. Um, it, it really focuses in on multiple choice um, and how powerful multiple choice questions can be. Mm -hmm. um, so long as the distractors, the answers that are not correct, so long as they have been designed carefully as well. And it suggests how we can guard against guessing. Um, perhaps by, by not telling students how many true or false answers there are. That's really what it's getting into. Yeah, I think that's a very important point you're, you're bringing up there about um, targeting the common misconceptions through designing multiple choice questions. I think uh, if we were to get dig, dig deep into multiple choice questions, it really is a, a, a challenging thing to do to design a question that really fleshes out whether students really do know what they're, what they're learning. I think that's really important. That I give a, a really quick example, if that's okay. Please um, do. Yeah, true or false, a bat is a mammal. Um, there's a one in two chance of a student guessing this correctly, 50%. Um, but second example, choose the mammal out of crocodile, shark, bat. There's a one in three chance of a student guessing this correctly, so 33%. Example three, choose the mammal, and we're not telling them how many. Yes, it's crocodile, shark, bat, parrot, cruel, turtle. Sorry, we are telling them how many. There's a one in six chance of students guessing this correct. Um, choose the two mammals, crocodile, shark, bat, parrot, rabbit, turtle. There's a one in 15 chance of students guessing this correctly, 17%. So you get the idea that depending on how you design the question, uh, you, can, you can change the level of difficulty and, and guard against guessing. I love that example. It's a different change of question. You can really dig into whether the students really do know. So thanks so much for that example. Um, the next element is element eight in question. And I'm going to flick past that because I want to move on to element nine on discussion, because I think this is such an important element of teaching that's quite often overlooked because, um, dare I say, that teachers might not be confident in leading a discussion and um, you're right there that students should have sufficient background knowledge and we've spoken about that in terms of our, of our review and our learning lessons and the importance of prior knowledge discussions are focused on specific learning but in PowerPoint 3 you put discussions are managed so all students participate and learn from each other and I think that can be a profound use of classroom time um, so could you give us some examples of how teachers could manage that discussion so that all students participate and learn from each other? So all students participating, we're back to our, our favorite tool, the show me board. Um, but, but there's other, other techniques that we, can, that we can bring in here. The, the technique of pose, pause, pounce, bounce whereby the question is asked and the teacher allows the thinking time through the pause and then they pounce in that, they ask a specific student the answer, but then they bounce that answer around the room. So a student has given the answer and the, the teacher, rather than saying yes or no, 
asks another student, what do you think of that? Is he or she right or wrong? Um, what, what, that answer was nearly there, wasn't it? But there was actually just one word or phrase that wasn't quite right in that answer. What was it? Now, if you're jumping around students like that and you could be asking any student, you've created this culture and this expectation that everybody needs to be listening to one another. It's not just a matter of good manners and politeness. Everybody needs to be listening to one another because you are likely going to ask students to comment on, to critique other students' answers. If somebody said something that is interesting, you may well build on that and ask another student to comment. Is that right? Is that wrong? Why? Um, in the pause of the pause, pause, pounce, pounce, rather than use of silence, where you might have said like 10 seconds thinking time, half a minute thinking time, you might instead have said, chat to a partner. You've got 30 seconds. You're now moving around the room. You're listening into the conversations. You're picking up on interesting things that you're maybe going to use as teaching points. But you've engaged everybody. Um, everybody is participating. So now you're taking a, a point that you've heard in that discussion and you're making a bigger point to the whole class. You ask a particular student a question and they lack a little bit of confidence and they, they, they give you an answer which they, they mumble or they, 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 they give you quite quietly. Are you just, you move closer to them and, and uh, you ask them to repeat it to you and they do the same thing, but now you've heard it because you've gone a bit closer. And then you say, yes, that's right. And you move on. The teaching could be made stronger if you amplified the student response so that the whole class hear it. So you know the student lacks confidence. And you're not, and they've done it, but you're not going to embarrass them. So what you're going to do is you're going to help them out. And you're going to say, what this student has just said is this. And that's a really, really important point that they've made. Let's talk about this for a moment. So there's an element of repetition there that helps learning, but this idea of amplify, that you take something that was said, perhaps quite quietly, perhaps uh, with a lack of confidence behind it, but you make a bigger deal out of it as, as a learning point for the class. Again, that's all about the culture in the room. Do students feel comfortable working in that way? Do they, do they feel safe in that you're, never, you're not going to humiliate them for wrong answers? You're not gonna berate them for wrong answers. You're not gonna let any student tease them for wrong answers. It's all about the culture that that we're all learning together. And I think one of the big points I'm trying to get out in this chapter is that when we talk about discussion, there's often the temptation to think we mean small groups. So get together in small groups, but whole class discussion of the kind that we're talking about here led by the teacher can be so powerful. That can be the best form of discussion. Broken up through chat to a partner moments, often the most ineffective form of discussion is when you do get small groups together there is a time and a place for those groups, but it, it, it often depends on the subject knowledge that the students have. And if they haven't developed a certain level of expertise as a collective group, uh, they will often flounder. They will take the opportunity to go off task because they, they become hidden somewhat from the teacher who's working with a different group. Um, if, if there's too much of a gap between where different students are in the small group, then some dominate um, and others and others don't take part because they don't know enough, or maybe they do know enough, but they just lack confidence. So those, those small group activities 
they absolutely have a place and they can be powerful, but we have to, we have to be careful in how we use them. Certainly. And I love the idea of getting all students to, to listen and learn from each other. But I also love what you mentioned there about amplifying students, you know, and showing that voice equity that everybody's um, opinion matters in the classroom, but you're not forcing them to, to speak up. You're amplifying that. So I think that's a, a very important point there. And, and perhaps last point on that, if it's okay, Darren, with the best will in the world, the, the teacher's working memory is as limited as the students. So it's, it's impossible actually to remember everything that's being said. So I talk about charting it. That's the techniques talked about here, whereby the, the teacher actually writes perhaps on the board some key words and phrases that are coming out from the discussion. That helps the teacher's working memory. It helps the student's working memory. And it also helps to avoid misunderstandings where a student has heard a word, thinks it's a particular word, but it's actually not that word. They've, they've just misheard it. So the word is not as they thought. So if, they, if it's written down and they can see it, it avoids those misunderstandings. Certainly, and a couple of things there. I, like, I love that nod to teachers' working memory because I've been working with teachers, um, getting them to script out um, answers they want students to have to certain questions, but having them on a, clip, a, a bit of paper on the white and on a clipboard so they don't need to they know what they're thinking about so that they're kind of exporting their working memory to the to, right. the, to the clipboard so they can listen more right. intently and so on. So it's a great point there. And um, also putting the words on the board, you're kind of helping students build their vocabulary. And then when they answer a question again, they can use the, the, the learning from the board. So thank you for, for pointing that out. Um, the next element is feedback. And then it moves on to, plenary review but I'd like to close this part of the um, interview Bruce on element 12 we've kind of flown through the, the elements but I think the listeners get a really good flavour for them and I hope it's going to make them um, rush out and, and buy the book because um, it really is a, a wonderful tool um, the last element is expe expectations behaviour and relationships and, and that's always very emotive for teachers everyone has an opinion and um, Sometimes uh, we kind of need a little bit of support to help us have high expectations. So you're right in here that um, when the power up prompts is there are high expectations for student, for standards of student behaviour and that high standards are modelled in everything we do. Can you speak to that, please? So I was working with a teacher um, at some point over the last year or so, who, who was having some issues um, with behavior management. And actually the teacher had themselves resolved a lot of the issues that they were having. There'd been a light bulb moment for the teacher, which had been the realization that they were not clear enough in their own mind what their expectations were for the class at specific points. What happens when the students arrive? as they enter the room, as they take their seats. Um, what happens if, if they need to ask a question, um, if they're stuck? The teacher had not been clear enough in their own mind what the expectations were. Therefore, there was poor articulation of those expectations as rules. Um, and I argue in this chapter that the rules are really the, the articulation of the expectations. Um, 
And once the teacher had realized that themselves, they started to work through what the specific expectations they would have at specific points in the lesson, what they would be. So now there are no gray areas in that teacher's mind. It's this or it's this. If this happens, then this will happen. The teacher needed that clarity in their own mind. And it can be tempting. Um, there always has to be a bit of pro professional judgment and flexibility, but we have to balance that with um, not letting the small things go too often. Because if we let the small things go too often, then students start to believe that, well, if they're going to let that go, they'll probably let this go. And, and funnily enough, they find they do. And then before you know it, you've got a big problem because you've let go of far too much. So it's this balance between being a bit, uh, there has to be an element of flexibility, I think. Um, but there has to be consistency in relation to your expectations. It's your classroom, it's your rules, which means you have to be clear in your own mind what your expectations are, just as a great lesson will come about through careful planning, so too great behavior in your lesson will come about through that careful planning of what your expectations are. Certainly, I love that idea of your room, your rules, but being very clear in your own mind of what the expectations are and what happens if X happens, we do Y and so on. And I love the nod in the chapter two, routines, because routines are so, so important in the classroom. But um, as we know, we're working with, with uh, young people. They often um, make mistakes and poor choices. So power up prompt five is, is misbehavior is managed through consistent, proportionate use of corrections and consequences. Could you give listeners a, a few ideas on, on how they can um, manage misbehavior through consistent and proportionate use of corrections and consequences? So there's a lot talked about in this section. Um, an overarching principle is that we're, we're trying to manage behavior in, a, in as low-key a way as we possibly can. We don't need to make a big deal about small things. That, that will just cause problems in the long run and will create an ethos that, that isn't particularly pleasant to work in for anyone. So it's not about letting things in a low-level way. So some of the corrections that I suggest a teacher can use, um, a non-verbal intervention, simply a look, or a hand gesture. And you probably need to practice that. You need to practice your look and your hand gesture, but it, but it often works. Um, so, there's, so that's a that's a trusted technique, which all these trusted techniques, as you know, they're, they're given specific names for ease of reference. So non-verbal gestures is what that one is. Use names. So rather than um, say to somebody, stop talking, you just say, Darren, and they stop. And, and you, you didn't need to come out with that, 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 that phrase, stop talking, which can be perceived as negative and actually invites a response, I wasn't talking, and then leads to an argument, simply mid-sentence, Darren, and Darren stops. And again, that, that requires some practice and it takes some skill. Ask a question to a student whose attention has wandered. Um, they're doing something that you wouldn't expect them to be doing. They're doodling. They're looking out the window. Um, so at an opportune point, soon after, 
you you ask them a question and now you've, you've got their attention back. Sometimes, depending on what's going on, the behavior that you're, you're not best pleased of with, you, you don't have, always have to respond to everything instantly. Some things you do, but some things you can just take a little bit more time with so that you're dealing with it in a low key way. Maybe you're repositioning yourself in the room. So you're walking down the classroom towards the student who's not paying attention and there's a hand gesture of some kind, or there's something subtle that actually often many students won't even be aware of. Um, that, I call that strategic positioning. Um, a, a private conversation would be another example of a correction, whereby you, you, at an opportune moment, you're, you're not interrupting the flow of your exposition if that's the stage of the lesson you're at, but an opportune moment, you just have a, pri a private conversation, a quiet word with the student. Remember, we expect this, not that. And, and it's subtle, it's quiet. Now, these are all corrections. Uh, consequences are, are higher level than that. Uh, that would be uh, giving a warning, um, asking a student to step outside of the room for a short period of time, moving the student's seat, um, emailing or phoning home, um, issuing a detention. Now, some of this, some of what the teacher is or is not able to do will be dictated by the school's promoting positive behavior or discipline policy. Um, and personally, I think that, I think that sometimes teachers can be constrained by the policy that a school has. Mm. If the policy for the school says, in terms of consequences, it must be staged as first warning, second warning, third warning, before you can then do this. The teacher is instantly disempowered. It's your classroom. It should be your rules. And as part of that, you should be free to exercise the corrections and consequences that you see fit within certain broad parameters, but they don't need to be as specific as first warning, second warning, third warning. That's the approach you want to take as the teacher and that's what works for you, well, great but that ne won't necessarily be the approach that works for the teacher next door. We should trust our, that our teachers are not at the first, uh, at the first moment of, of, of indiscipline going to, 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 to default to the most serious sanction, that they're not going to have seven students standing outside the lesson for 30 minutes at a time. That just doesn't happen. That's not what teachers want to happen. Teachers want students to be in the lesson, um, behaving well and learning. That's what teachers want. So that's really, I think, Darren, what, what this section of the book is, is getting at. No, it certainly is. And, and it's a wonderful point to note about, about teachers. We're all, we all want the best of our students and we're not going to needlessly dismiss them, <laughs> dismiss them for lessons, but there are stepped consequences that, that we often often use. If, if I could jump in and just to conclude that part with the power up prompt, because it's a good example of how it's trying to capture that as a succinct message. The power up prompt is misbehavior is managed through proportionate use of corrections and consequences. So you're looking at that statement as a teacher and you're reflecting on that and you're thinking, well, to what extent is that true? Um, what is it that I could do if I think that this is an aspect of my practice that I want to, what could I do? That's where the trusted techniques come in. 
certainly isn't. And my final point, my final question to you here is that power up prompt nine is there is a strong, warm, strict behaviour balance. Can you speak to that idea of warm, strict, please? Warm, strict comes from Doug Lemos, teach like a champion. There's no point me trying to give this um, a different name in this book because that name is perfect. That's a principle that I have found to work time and time again in classrooms, in departments, faculties, and in, in schools. This idea of warm, strict, it's perfect. Um, warm in the relationships that we have with our students. They know that we care about them, that we only want the best for them, that we want them to learn and to achieve, that we won't default to high-level consequences when actually low-level subtle corrections will suffice, that we won't humiliate them, etc. But strict in that we have high expectations for good reasons, and these expectations are articulated as crystal clear rules. And we will be consistent um, in, in our expectation that these rules are followed. And where they're not, we will, we will manage that in a consistent way. It, students know, if I do this, which is wrong, this will happen. The, 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 there's no doubt about that. So that's, that's the key, I think, to, to really strong discipline in a class, um, that warm, strict balance. Certainly, and thank you. A wonderful way to finish talking about the, the warmth and how much we care and want the best from our students, but we do that through having high expectations of them. So I, I want to conclude there with, with the um, interview section, Bruce. I think we've explored quite a lot of the elements there, and I think listeners have got a really good flavour of um, Power Up Your Pedagogy. So thank you so much. Um, I've only got the quick fire left um, for you. Before we do that, can you please share with the listeners um, where they can um, find out more about you, get in touch with you, and of course, where they can buy the book? Yeah, thanks, Darren. So the trilogy is the Teaching Delusion trilogy. That's the Teaching Delusion, the Teaching Delusion 2, Teaching Strikes Back, and the Teaching Delusion 3, Power Up Your Pedagogy, which is what we've been talking about. Uh, these are published by John Cat Educational. They are available from their online bookshop, available from Amazon and Waterstones and, and any other uh, book outlet. Um, my website is theteachingdelusion.com. And I post regularly on that. Um, my Twitter handle is at TT Delusion. Brilliant. Thank you. And I'd encourage listeners to check out your, your website because you, you've had some fantastic five minute guides and blogs, really digestible reads that are really, really interesting and really help challenge our thinking a little bit. So, can I, all that's left to do is our, my quick fire round which I do in, in most podcasts I jumble up the questions so I may have asked you these before I may not have <laughs> I don't know but um the first one I want to ask you Bruce is what are you reading currently Sean Allison at making every lesson count brilliant brilliant brilliant. Brilliant, brilliant book so thank you thank you for referencing that um what is your current professional development focus 
I've probably said this to you before, but I, I'm a great believer that you can you can you can never learn enough about the core business of teaching and learning in schools. Um, and, and the essence of good leadership is, is have in schools is having a strong understanding of curriculum and pedagogy. So my own focus uh, continues uh, as, it, as it has over the past uh, few years is to continuously upskill myself in terms of curriculum and pedagogy. So I continue to read regularly and widely um, on those themes. Um, the, 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 the quality of literature available to us um, as people who work in education at the moment, it's vast. And just when I think I'm getting to the bottom of my reading pile, something else is released. Uh, and I find myself uh, <laughs> buying that and it, and it gets added to the pile. So um, it's as generic as curriculum and pedagogy. Um, but it, it, it's always interesting. And it always encourages you to think about something in a slightly different way. So the way that Sean Allison is, is talking about something at the moment is um, would, would be slightly different from how Doug Lemoff or Tom Sherrington or Kate Jones talk about it. So, so I read widely and it encourages me to think about similar things, but from different angles, and it sharpens my thinking on these things. Definitely love that idea of sharpening your thinking. And I think I can... Um totally attest to that affliction that I have that my reading pile just seems to get bigger and bigger and bigger even though I seem to be reading so many so much books it's just it's great to, to really get tap into everyone's thinking and and challenge my own mind and build my own schema on, on all these things so thanks very much for sharing that my final question is that what do you love most about being a teacher Again, I'm probably giving an answer that's similar to answers I've given previously, but it is working with teachers and supporting teachers to develop classroom practice through a focus on curriculum, through a focus on pedagogy, um, working with those who are in leadership positions so that they become upskilled uh, to do the same thing, to work with those who, who are a part of their team. Uh, because the excitement from that comes, one, from, from the joy that, that teachers get from improving their practice, because the better we become at things, the more we tend to enjoy our work. And then the difference that that makes to the day-to-day -day classroom experience of students, because that's what it's all about at the end of the day, um, is the, the learning and the experience that students have in the school. But my role as the head teacher um, is to create the conditions so that teaching and learning gets better and better and better. And, and that's, that's really what drives me. Right. Thanks so, so much for sharing that and what a wonderful drive that you, you have there. So thank you. Um, that just leaves me to say thank you so much for coming on Become an Educated podcast for the third time. It's been an absolute privilege to speak to you again about another fantastic book. Thank you so much for everything that you're doing. Um, and you're a, a, to me, you're a, a leading voice in, in Scottish education. So thank you so much, Bruce. Thanks so much for having me, Darren. And, and likewise, um, the, the, the quality of the podcast
becoming educated. Um, superb. Thank you. Super. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Becoming Educated. As ever, I would be delighted to hear your thoughts and you can contact me via Twitter at DNLesley or via email. So that you don't miss out, I urge you to subscribe to the podcast. And while I have your attention, why not submit a review of the podcast wherever you get yours from so that many, many others can access Becoming Educated. I'll be back next week with another episode of Becoming Educated and I do hope to see you there.